Welcome to Students of Life Radio Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. You know, I still haven't decided how I like to do introductions, if I'm being honest. It's tough. They, they're they uh, <laughs> probably going to be awkward no matter what you do. Well, I feel like as a podcaster, I should know this by now, but um, for some reason, I just, I don't know. I feel like maybe it's a good thing to have a different introduction every episode. Yeah, I think that it, it keeps it a little fresh. I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I've never heard a like structured introduction that didn't sound very scripted so yeah it feels almost very stilted yeah yeah because you switch all of a sudden into podcaster voice welcome everybody to students of life podcast right you put your npr voice on yeah that's not how i talk that's not how anybody i mean maybe some people do but i feel like if i start walking around like that um people would be concerned for me i think so (laughs) well i'm gonna assume that the episode started and say welcome thank you robert for joining me today thank um, you how, for having how, how the heck are you i'm doing well i am uh i'm pretty excited right now i got some stuff moved into an apartment in new york city over the weekend nice uh, to start a new job there next month so yeah you mentioned that when i reached out to you or you reached out to me um i forget who contacted i think i emailed you originally yeah um and you mentioned so robert wenner is a graduate student from or he's a student who graduated from Stony Brook University uh, and you had dual majors in philosophy and political science and minors in English and creative writing so you kept pretty busy I assume um, and this year you graduated from Penn Law and you'll be working as a tra- transactional lawyer starting next month in New York City which I guess explains the uh, the big move right yeah, absolutely. I uh, so I finished up in May in Philly and got out of there like the day after graduation. Started studying for the bar pretty much right away back upstate with some family, and mm. uh, have just been living here with my folks since then. Took the bar last month, and uh, finally got to move into New York City done so I can get there the day that I start working the day before. Got wow. It. Yeah, and. I mean, one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on too is because it sounds like the work that you do and, and the work that you're going to do, I mean, it's something a little different from what some of my former students uh, end up moving into. We were kind of talking before the episode about how where I teach and where you went to school, it's a very STEM-heavy focused um, student body, right? You get a lot of uh, science technology students, uh, but I do get a lot of other students as well, just by virtue of the fact that it is such a big university. And so inevitably, I do get humanities students. I do get law students, for example. I've actually had some of those on the podcast, and it's always really interesting to hear their sort of insights and experiences when thinking about the fact that, well, we all met in my introductory writing class and sort of how that's influence them in all sorts of ways. And again, it's not always just professional ways. It's also personal and, and interpersonal, which bleeds into the professional environment and professional realms, so to speak, right? So I guess just starting out or continuing, I'm kind of curious about, I mean, maybe a little bit just about your journey. I mean, did you always know that you wanted to go into this type of work? I mean, I guess at, at a certain point you you decided, but was this sort of uh, focus of yours made before, during, or after our freshman writing class? 
Um, I think that it was a lot grayer than that. I, I don't know if there was any single moment. Um, I mean, my, my parents showed me a few good men when I was like eight and it spiraled <laughs> from there. But, uh, yeah. no, I, I think that I always had, uh, law in the back of my mind. Uh, in high school, I got a chance to do like a one day a week internship and I, uh, went to a local public defender's office. And, uh, that, you know, made a couple connections there that I was able to revisit in undergrad. So for two summers during undergrad, I went back to the public defender's office and learned that I definitely wanted to be a lawyer and definitely didn't want to be a public defender. Um, but I, I don't know that, uh, it was ever really clear to me that, that the path I was on was, uh, you know, set out ahead of me or anything. I think that, <clears throat> well, I arrived at Stony Brook as a journalism major. And that lasted two weeks of freshman year. (laughs) (laughs) Went to my advisor's office and said, it was before ad drop swap. I went to him and said, I need to get out of this journalism class. Can't do it. Um, Not not for me. I took a a, a political science professor I had that semester said in the first class that he thinks everyone should take a philosophy class during undergrad. So I switched out of journalism class into a philosophy class and uh, picked up a philosophy major the next semester, I think uh, I transferred to that department. Um, so it was really uh, through undergrad, especially, I mean, both, both of the minors that I picked up were just, I had taken classes in those departments already and figured I'd keep doing it. Uh, cause I enjoyed it felt important to me. Um, the path all along has kind of been more based on what opportunities arise, uh, and, pursuing them as makes sense. Um, I I think that Penn Law was an incredible school and I was very fortunate to go there. But uh, that that wasn't a plan. I didn't think that that was even realistic. Um, It was, I was was fortunate enough that that was the opportunity that presented itself and I went that direction and uh, ended up in a position that that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to starting this job, starting this work. I think that it's it's the right fit, but there was no moment where I knew that that was what was right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you sort of hit on a key point there, this idea that, yeah, I mean, you can kind of have ideas or kind of have directions in mind, but I mean, a, a great value to undergraduate education, which in some ways, I feel like it, it's gotten a little muddied, this value over time that it is an opportunity to navigate through these different options and find opportunities and pathways that do direct you towards where you realize actually, yeah, this is something that really makes sense for me. It's something that I really want to do. And this is an experience that so many undergrads that I work with that have gone through my class, whether freshman writing classes or upper division classes, I see time and time again, like the idea of a very narrow track that I'm going to college as a freshman with this major in mind and this degree. And even a lot of them have very specific jobs in mind that they want to eventually end up at. I feel like that's like rarer and rarer. And that sort of makes sense to me when you think about the diversity of what jobs are actually out there and how those change over time. I mean, a lot of fields, I use computer science as an example that, I mean, computer science is a field. I don't know how long it's even existed. At a certain point, you go back far enough, it it doesn't even exist. And there are jobs in fields like that, that students who start as freshmen, by the time they graduate, 
those jobs that they had in mind might be gone or they might be changed in some other way or there might be entirely new jobs or opportunities opened up. And this is true. I'm noticing talking to a lot of students in other fields as well, whether it's healthcare or um, some other sciences where they're doing all this really interesting, fascinating work that, again, if they sort of had this very narrow mindset from the outset and they stuck with it, they would have missed all of these other opportunities. But that's all to say that that sort of broader spectrum in mind of, well, I even if I am interested in this field or this type of work, how I actually get there and how I navigate getting there, you never know where that actually leads. As you say, with Penn Law, that's something where as a freshman might have not been on your radar at all, but just the way of, you know, the virtue of the fact of navigating these experiences and opportunities, um, you wind up presented with further opportunities that lead to further experiences that lead to further opportunities. And it kind of um, does direct your focus ultimately, ultimately. So that's really cool to hear especially from a perspective of somebody who's in a field such as law, which I know is interesting to hear about too, because when I think law, and I use this example in class a lot too, I think a lot of writing and reading, that's sort of the first thing that comes to mind. And that's something that a lot of people in that field sort of reference. And so it was interesting to hear that you were also a creative writing minor, I believe, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I was a creative writing minor, and I think that uh, it stuck out to me definitely by the, I mean, you know, philosophy, political science, creative writing, and English don't necessarily mm. have the most overlap, I don't think, um, not for all four of them, but uh, I think that the common thread there is, um, you know, conveying ideas is is this sense of, of communication that all four of them, at least as classes, were, were very heavily based on. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think that I think creative writing was uh, a way to approach abstract ideas and and arguing things in, in uh, less concrete, more visceral terms in a lot of ways than, mm. than something like philosophy was. And that's, I mean, de definitely uh, all over the work that I've done the last three years in law school and I'm going to be doing going forward. You, uh, you mentioned you teach in the creative writing department now? Yeah, I do. I teach a, uh, an upper division uh, forms of fiction. It's a particularly focused on short fiction writing course. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. uh, it's that is that three hundred five. Yeah, it's the three hundred five. Very I very good. Took a couple three hundred fives uh, when I was there. I, I was going to ask, was there? Because um, I'm not sure exactly how the minor works in terms of like, do you have a a designation in terms of a type of form that you focus on, or can you just sort of focus on bits and pieces of different forms such as short fiction, poetry, etc. Uh, I was uh, a short fiction person but I, I don't think yes. there were yeah that was that was definitely where i had it but i don't think there were any requirements around how many of mm -hmm. each group you take i never took a poetry course when i was there gotcha yeah um, everyone had to take writing everything and reading everything uh, whatever those courses were called the the 200 levels yeah mm -hmm. um and then it was a certain number of 300 level courses that you had to take but i think all of mine were um well, there was you had to take one on uh, an upper level literature class, 
So I took like a, a okay. I read yeah. War and Peace. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> that was a fun semester. That was yeah. That's that's a that's a bulky one. Yeah. Uh, that is not short fiction. It is not. No. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not. I'm not looking to write War and Peace. So I'm not either. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. But then everything else I took was all 305. I think it was forms of fiction and as much short story stuff as I could do. Yeah, I mean, I love that form too. Um, for all sorts of reasons, but. It's just something it's it's interesting to think about what we were just talking about with navigating different pathways and opportunities. And I feel as if, yeah, I could write other forms, but there's something about short fiction that just the way my brain works and the way ideas come to me and how I process them. I really like contextualizing those ideas within the short fiction form um, and, and how they're sort of presented and how they impact different types of audiences. And that was something interesting you mentioned too, this idea of studying creative writing and I guess particularly short fiction and how it kind of gives you that sense of thinking more abstractly, which is really interesting to think about because again, like we were saying earlier too, the idea that especially at a science heavy school, or even if you think of something as law as I I guess you would maybe call it very bureaucratic is not the right word, but I think very technical written word and, and interpretation of written word, that sort of stuff. So, so many times when I think of those hard sciences or or hard sort of translations, creative writing, people don't think of that as having anything to do or any sort of efficacy in terms of pairing with all of that. But clearly, like you say, there there really is in terms of how it connects to your processing of, of thinking, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, so I'm not uh, going into litigation, which is... The, the side of law that re- I mean, transactional litigation is kind of a false dichotomy. But mm. in the broadest terms, litigation is the side of law that is more based on, you know, researching, reading up on case law, and then writing down an argument to uh, convince someone uh, that that your side is right. And mm. um, that's not the work that I'm going into, but is stuff I had to do a bunch throughout law school, and. I think that uh, if you don't have a sense of what it is that moves someone, what it is that that makes someone think a certain way, it's really tough to convince them of your side of an argument. Um, I think that the balance between the creative writing classes I took and the philosophy classes I took was so important to what I was able to do in law school because uh, they they're completely different approaches to tackling the same problem, which is you want someone to feel what you are feeling when you're writing it, or you want someone to think what you're thinking Mm -hmm. in that moment. And uh, you really, you can't get by on either half of of that, that line. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you can convince many people with like purely mathematical. um, It's abstract. Philosophical writing is abstract, but it's abstract in a different way. It's like, abstract in a platonic way Mm. where you're talking about these uh idealistic manifestations of ideas that that you want to convince someone of what you know what's what's a triangle on its own out in space (laughs) and and creative writing can be so um abstract in the the process 
mm-hmm. but uh, real and and raw and emotional and and what you're trying to convey to someone the the space that you're trying to put them in. And I think that hey, any argument you're making that that only falls on one side of that dichotomy is probably not going to be as effective. That's really interesting because. I really spend the first, I don't know, maybe quarter of the semester before we even get to writing papers in my freshman class. I mean, you might remember this, um, focusing on some of these foundational rhetorical elements, if we want to call them that, right? Right. And of course, the first sort of analysis of that or identification of that that comes up are through the forms of ethos, logos, and pathos, these sort of rhetorical appeals, which of course you talk about in philosophy as well. Um, but it's exactly what you're saying where that's what we've been talking about the last week in class. Like, oh, let's look at this letter, this email, this whatever type of sample we might be going through and assess it along those lines. Well, what is the credibility here or the perceived credibility, right? Or the presumed credibility, the attempted credibility. Um, what is the logical reasoning? What is the emotional appeal? Well, what is the way to balance all of those elements, right? What is the appropriate balance of all of those elements? And so it's one of those very, I feel, almost innate, tangible assessments once you start to break it down that way. That's so relevant in so many scenarios or situations, whether it is uh, maybe in cases of law and, and argumentation there, but just in daily life too. If I'm writing an email to somebody at work, whether they're a superior or somebody I know or don't know, we talk about this. I've taught professional uh, writing too, business type writing. And you sort of start to break up these rhetorical situations where you say you're writing a proposal, whether it's a broader business proposal or you're proposing a specific project or something like that. The idea of proposal writing can manifest in so many ways, but you can start to identify the rhetorical situation in terms of an internal proposal versus an external proposal, um, a solicited you know, proposal versus an unsolicited proposal. What does that audience know or not know, right? And these are such relevant skills that, again, that you take them everywhere in life, both in work and your personal um, well-being in terms of navigating just, I don't know, walking down the street even or dealing with different family members. So I feel as if it's interesting to think about education from a practical perspective in that way, because I think it does have all of these relevant applications professionally, but there's also just these interpersonal developmental considerations that it's so hard to qualify in class because the examples are just so numerous and almost like ethereal in some ways where you kind of have to really experience them to appreciate them. And that's something that I know a lot of students have said as well, where yeah, just in terms of how they navigate the world and the people that they know, again, whether professionally or personally, they they find that these types of courses, whether it's a more technical introductory expository writing class or a creative writing class where you're still trying to maybe make points or get points across, but you're obviously doing it in a way where I mean, you can come back to recontextualizing the idea of ethos and and the idea of, well, do I trust the voice of the author, you know, the authority of the voice of the author? Um, and how does it make me feel in all those considerations? So I, I think it's really interesting, too, to think about those different sort of types of courses and how those kind of core concepts, they really manifest in different ways in terms of how they maybe affect us 
in our in our real lives in those ways too. And I think it's really tough to. I think you don't get it until you get it. I think that you can talk yeah. uh, all you want to anyone about the the, the ways that the uh, like these aspects of communication are everywhere, and until right. you like take a course on it or whatever it is um, that, that causes you to start seeing them, you're not going to realize how pervasive they are. Um, I, I know that it's, I think it's analogous to um, after taking a bunch of creative writing courses, after taking a bunch of those 305s, I started reading things differently. I started, yeah, right. I got vi- much less frequently would I feel just purely emotionally moved by something because when that started to happen i would think that's really cool what's the author doing to get me there how how did i end up in this space or or on the other hand things that don't land as well i might be thinking you know what's the trick they were trying to pull what is uh, how are they how are they managing the reader here in a way that wasn't Mm -hmm. satisfactory and i think that um especially after there's a Pro, there was a process during law school called OCI, on-campus interviews, where I did uh, 24 interviews in like a 10-day stretch, something like that. It's just this crazy gauntlet wow. of, of job interviews yeah. where like that that's your life for two weeks is... Yeah, that's a gauntlet. <laughs> you, you interview and interview and interview and yeah. eventually, uh, hopefully you land someplace. Um, and on the other side of that, I... I was looking at conversations differently. I was like, you know, mm. you're talking to someone at the DMV and you're like, oh, I'm being managed. Oh, they're, <laughs> they're, yeah, you know, they're, right. oh, they're being sympathetic because they think that that's the thing that gets me off the phone right now. Um, yeah. Right. Stuff like that. And if it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's Starbucks. It's when you're mm-hmm. uh, at the DMV. It's when you get calls from, from politicians asking for donations, right? It's all the time. Yeah, it makes me fascinated by people in general because you start to think in terms of that you you develop that metacognition, right? Or meta awareness of really thinking outside of your own perspective. And yeah, it's really it's makes it interesting to me as well how it affects how I approach those people also, which is really cool. So, you know, if I run into somebody on the street and they're handing out religious Jesus pamphlets or something, because I just saw one of those. Um, I might have an initial reaction in the past to that for whatever reasons or in whatever context or capacities. But now when I see something like that, I think, ooh, I want to learn more about what this per- why this person is really doing what they're doing. What is really going on beneath the surface? Because it might be different than what it seems like on the surface, because there's lots of reasons for why somebody might do that. And there may be one reason more than another, or there may be various types of other overlapping reasons. And that's partially the writer mind of mine wanting to develop characters. Right. <laughs> and the way to do that is to unravel those motivations and those, you know, potential experiences that inform those uh, and have developed those motivations, that sort of thing. But yeah, it, it's something that I think does come with with time and sort of trying to synthesize like, yeah, look at this story and how, you know, these characters were developed and manifest. And a lot of times it's I, I sort of think of my own best stories in those ways. They're almost amalgamations of different character traits I've seen in people in the real world. And I'll start to 
think about, oh, that's interesting that that person was affected or motivated in that way by that experience or that background or whatever the case is. And how can I sort of meld that with other factors to create a really interesting original concept or, or person? And that's something that's interesting to think about too, because sometimes people ask me like, oh, do you ever base a character on somebody you know? And I wouldn't say so much. I think it's it's more that sort of uh, hive mind crowdsourcing where, where it's just aspects of personality that I, I see and experience. So uh, warning to everybody out there, you're all material um, and myself included. Sometimes it's aspects of my own personality, obviously, because I should ideally know that better than anyone else. But I don't know if that makes, does that make sense or do I sound like a complete lunatic? Because I feel like there's a fine line there and I'm probably way over it most of the time. No, I think that made total sense. I think that, um, you know, I try to avoid building narratives where they may not exist or, or you know, imposing them uh, onto the, the people that I'm interacting with, but sometimes narratives are there for a reason. You know, they're very helpful. They're very uh, creating narratives is is kind of the only way we have to understand more about the people around us. I think you, you have to do some of the legwork of uh, figuring someone out and determining uh, what matters to them or or how they think right, about yeah. the world. If you want to ever get out of your own head and, and experience it like someone else might experience it. And um, I don't I feel like I'm sounding a little bit too, you know, how to win friends and influence people here. But I, <laughs> I, I think, well, that, uh, I... well, I think that approaching people in this more intentional way, treating them as, as like these really like three dimensional complex beings. Right. It also, it's not just, uh, it's not just the call to the DMV that it helps with. It helps you connect with people uh, more meaningfully. It, it, you, you know, if you understand people's motivations, then you'll also understand when something is just important to them. When yeah, the right. the person handing out the pamphlets on the street just really believes in this, and that's you know why they're out there. Um, or if if that's not why, uh, now I'm the one that's uh, rambling. So. <laughs> no, I mean, we're both out here. It's a, yeah, it's a, well, it's, it's a really interesting concept and consideration because I think you're right. It's, it's easy. So, I mean, that's sort of a, I don't know if extreme example is the right phrasing, but um, it's sort of a very distinct example, right? But it could be any other type of person. So I host a lot of beach cleanup events, for example, and I get a lot of different types of people who come out to my beach clean events from all walks of life, young, old, wealthy, not so wealthy. Um, and, you know, I've had, especially, I feel like in the past few years, people from very disseparate parts of the political spectrum come out. And that's really interesting to me because they're the same types of people who, regardless of my political affiliation, if I was on one side or the other, if I just saw them or like heard them, in a vacuum or in an arbitrary other setting, I might be prone like we are, especially say via social media to say, oh, this person is just a whack job or they just, they think in their own bubble or their own, like it's easy to other like, and just categorize. And I mean, you can sort of extend that to like stereotyping people um, based on a perceived affiliation. But the thing I like about doing that type of advocacy work is that 
it sort of breaks down that first barrier and you can start to talk up to them about something on common ground because it's something that we're all noticing regardless of our political affiliation like oh this speech is has a ton of garbage that's something that we can agree upon that's a good starting point right and then you can kind of you know maybe get in a little bit deeper from there and realize like yeah obviously you know political spectrums they are spectrums right so there are different degrees to which people you know really sort of lean into one mindset or camp whatever you want to call it or the other uh and they're not just automatons ultimately you know they have reasons for what they believe or what they don't believe and i try to just you know sort of press on the fact that well here's something that is common ground that we can at least start with and maybe look into a little bit more together as we're observing these or this common issue that sort of thing um which again is is trying to think of ourselves and each other i think as more like you were saying i think you mentioned earlier this idea of 3d characters which is really important it's something that i think we are more and more fundamentally lacking in a lot of different types of discourse and sometimes maybe it's fair uh, enough but when it's sort of just done in mass to everybody it, the situation becomes very unproductive very quickly i feel like and i i just feel like that's more and more of a problem that i don't know if it's caused by social media but it's certainly i don't know proliferated by social media it's it's made easier to sort of slip into that perhaps potentially i think definitely i think social media um has changed the way that people interact with each other um, in, you know, ways that, that seem like they must be permanent uh, and aren't necessarily all encompassing, but are very difficult to overcome. I think that the way that social media algorithms prioritize conflict and, uh, right. yeah. and prioritize you know, any individual seeing the thing that they feel most strongly about um, means that so much more of, of people's day-to-day interaction at this point is conflict-based, is is them, you know, seeing the opinion in the world that they find most despicable and getting fired up about it because, of course, they will. And, you know, that that's what they're thinking about for the rest of the day. That's what they want to talk about. That's what they're going into the rest of their interactions with. Right, and. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think it's it's so important right now to to intentionally prioritize the you know the, things like the advocacy you were talking about where you're having these interactions that are uh, with people who are not necessarily of like minds on everything but are of like minds on something that it, that that matters and that you can use as a, a starting point. Um, just not even, and this is I don't even mean this as like any kind of political or moral stance. I just think psychologically mm. it's so important to individuals to have interactions yeah. that are more diverse than you're going to find on whatever social media platform you most frequent and are less contentious than, than you're going to find online. Yeah, well, I think you'll ultimately be maybe happier if you do that. I, I don't know if that's a fact, but it seems like it would help. Maybe. It seems like it must be <laughs> true. Bit. I I mean yeah it just that like that makes so much sense to think in that way that because we talk about it in other contexts and capacities oh yeah travel is good for you because it diversifies your horizons or something like that you're exposed to diversity in different ways and um 
I, I mean, it's easier for, for me or for us maybe because as writers, like we're kind of forced to examine stuff that probably we particularly disagree with because we, we have to understand, well, what are those mechanics or mechanisms? And again, that that's what makes uh, in part really interesting writing too, because you're able to then craft a complex character or something like that. I, I wrote a story that was published, I think back in the spring and I, I specifically remember very intentionally making this character very morally ambiguous, like on the surface, he's not a great guy, but he's not pure evil. There's a difference, right? You, you can make a character that's very arch villain that, you know, is doing all these terrible things, but he's like not a great guy, but he's not the worst. And there's things about him that are objectional, uh, um, objectively repugnant. But he's trying in some senses. And this, to me, I was like, this is fascinating to me. They're like, this is so much more interesting. And my dad actually put it perfectly because he read the story. And he said, yeah, this guy is just so interesting. I said, ooh, why is that? And he said, well, I feel like he's a bad guy, but I want him to win. And I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I want. It's like kind of the Tony Soprano effect where you know he's not you shouldn't be cheering for this guy but you there's a part of you that somehow it, you can't help but sort of root for him which is and then you feel guilty for that because he's not a good guy you know in many ways um, so yeah but I, th- I think that does stem from this you know sort of stepping outside of our our perspectives too and I do think that there's something uh, incredibly deep-seated in people that that leads to that the fascination with those kind of characters i know that people tend to talk about you know tony soprano and walter white and the the game of thrones crowd uh, as as Mm -hmm. like this this change in the zeitgeist where we're we're very interested in anti-heroes now but i it seems like that goes back a lot farther that i mean like you can look at um a lot of uh, Hemingway's characters are not written to be good people, I don't think, but they are in a lot of ways admirable. I think that you can look at Tolstoy's protagonists are so frequently mm. these like, but at least by the standards of the time, these like disreputable, dishonorable figures that he's so clearly trying to get you to root for. And that by the end of it, you're like, yeah, but I really, mm. I do want this scheme to work out for him. Uh, you know, Macbeth is yeah. one of the most timeless that's, characters in literature. That's a good one too. And he's a monster. He's this, but is <laughs> right. he a monster? Right? But like he, he, but you understand how he got to to where he is, and that's the the fascination with the play. I don't right. know. It's it's interesting. There's something there. Yeah. Well, it becomes these like almost self reflective cautionary tales as well, right. where we sort of see ourselves reflected in those characters as opposed to purely good or purely evil ones it's funny you mentioned game of thrones because i was thinking about that the other day how george R. R. martin says that his favorite books i believe were you know the lord of the rings books which are very different books from the game of thrones books but he mentioned how his favorite character was always boromir from lord of the rings because he was the most sort of ambiguous one in terms of he had these internal conflicts that the other characters had conflicts of very various sorts but his was very much sort of a more sort of lucid balancing act between well 
And he, he ultimately, spoiler alert, he falls because of it because he wants the power to do what's right. But the power in doing so, it causes his downfall. And that's when you phrase it that way, that's a very sort of classical, you know, almost mythological um, theme that we can recognize in lots of other work. So, yeah, I think it's something that is innately part of what we we look for and we we tend for. Um, and it's just I, I think it's what makes good, interesting writing. Overall. Yeah, I think that makes <laughs> sense. I think it's it's very you know, it's, it's built right into like Aristotelian tragedy. These yeah, right. ideas of, right. you know, relatable motivations that are still in the wrong in some way. So. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of relatable motivations and characters and powers of various sorts, um, I wanted to ask while well, we have a few minutes left because we're moving along here. Oh, well, time flies. Um, I time flies when you're talking writing yeah, in the world and everything. Um, so one question I, I always like to make sure I ask before we end is uh, a very simple one, very straightforward. And that's if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Um, I, and this can be in relation to anything that helps you, helps the world. You know, you could have Thanos snap fingers. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go with that one. I don't think I'm going <laughs> the Thanos route, especially off the back of our last few minutes of conversation here. Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, yeah. I think that I I wish that I don't know if this is a power, um, it, like a way to process information more quickly, a way to. Um, mm. you know, understand things without all of the time it takes to understand things would be incredibly useful. I think that life Interesting. is, at least at the moment, probably if you asked me, you know, a, a couple of huh. years ago, my answer would be like telekinesis is cool because I don't want to have to get up off the couch all the time. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that uh, yeah. what I love doing yeah. is being out in the world and interacting with people and, and learning about their experiences and if i have anything meaningful to say about my own experiences sharing that and uh i, I think that the the problem is that i'm not going to meet most people and most people's experiences mm. are, are going to remain unknown to me and the only way to get the experiences of people completely out of uh my circle whether that's like people from from different time periods or areas of the world or walks of life that I would just not be exposed to it is to consume some kind of media in some way is to read what they've written is to watch what mm. they've created um, and I, I love having read things often a lot more than I love reading things um, and so I think that if there was you know uh, speed reading i guess is my superpower i want to consume the experience yeah, no, quickly so i, I can get I back get that. to keep, like meeting with people in the real world no i i really like that because i asked that question once and i was trying to think of basically how to process exactly that answer because i was like well could i slow the earth's rotation down so i can get 26 right. hours in a day so i could do more reading and just consuming information and experiences and processing it 
Um, so maybe maybe like a Neuralink chip or something <laughs> could manifest uh, your reality because I I would l- it's the same thing with trying to learn a language like if I could learn that in a better more effective way I would be interested in learning so many more languages but the way my brain works is I really need to experience it and use it with talking with people I have to sort of be immersed in the setting so if I could just download that. I mean, I, I don't know if I would want to do that per se um, because I would miss the experience, but if I could somehow process it in a more effective superpower manner like that, right. that would be great. Too. Right. I don't want to miss okay. the experience of like learning about another culture by yeah. speaking to, to people who, who are living in that culture. But I do right. want to miss the experience of the Duolingo owl yelling at me every day that I forgot my lesson. Yes. Exa- right. Exactly. So. Yeah. 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 So I think I think there's something there um, in terms of a very relevant superpower that um, I don't know, maybe maybe one day Neuralink will <laughs> make it re- reality. But I, I don't see myself no, plugging chips into my no, brain. No, see, you said soon, Neuralink so. and I was like, ah, but now it's a little too real. Now, maybe maybe I'll just stick to the, yeah, the reading no. things. Yeah. Or telekinesis. telekinesis. Sounds great. Demand, telekinesis, you can never go wrong with, no, you, you know, can... so sit right there well robert thank you so much um this was great like i said i never know what direction we're going to go in and i feel like we had some fantastic rambling about a lot of fantastic things especially writing related so that's always uh, i appreciate you having me on this was a lot of fun it was great being able to to reconnect a little bit here so yeah yeah definitely and and i'll be in touch uh, certainly moving forward so thank you all for listening whoever you are wherever you are And if you would like to hear more, subscribe wherever you're listening to us. You can find us on other podcast platforms as well, including Spotify, Apple, all the hits. We're everywhere. So give us a follow, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. And we will hope to see you next time. So until then, be safe out there, uh, be well, and as always, keep learning.